0: You are listening to a recording of the launch of MEDAC's latest report, Racism, Mental Health and Pre-Crime Policing, The Ethics of Vulnerability Support Hubs. The report launch took place on the 19th of May, 2021. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Dr Tarek Younis, clinical psychologist and lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University, Dr Charlotte Heath-Kelly, reader in politics and international studies at University of Warwick, Vicki Nash, Head of Policy, Campaigns and Public Affairs at Mind, and Dr Hilary AKID, Medax Research and Policy Manager. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So thank you very much for coming today. Um, we're really excited to have you here for the launch of our latest report, which is called Racism, Mental Health and Pre-Crime Policing, The Ethics of Vulnerability Support Hubs. And the report was co-authored by Dr Hilary Aikid, Dr. Tarek Yunus and Dr. Charlotte Heath-Kelly, all of whom are here today with us. Um, so if you're thinking of tweeting about today's training, please do use the end Prevent hashtag and, or I mean, hopefully both tag us at, at Medact in your tweet. Um, so firstly, my name is Rima Buhaya and I'm the campaigns and policy lead, um, working specifically on peace and security issues And um, I'm going to start off with just some technical details for today's training, which my colleague, Ben, will hopefully be putting up on your screen as well. So um, firstly, you'll you'll have noticed that all members of the audience aren't able to unmute or share video. And that's because we're asking for comments to be placed in the chat box and questions in the Q&A box. Um, And as I said before, do feel free to introduce yourselves in the chat box which you can find below. Um, And just so you know, because I know you can't see it, but we already have nearly 100 people here with us today, which is really amazing. Um, I also would like to invite you to use the separate Q&A function, which will remain open throughout the the webinar today to ask any questions you may have, which we hope to get to in the final half an hour of this talk. So you can find the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And as you can see, um, as you can see, you can also choose to send a question anonymously. I don't know Ben if you can skip to the next slide. So they, yeah, so you can choose to send the um, question anonymously if you'd rather not have it read out with your name attached to it. Um, and uh, please do use the Q and A function for questions and not comments. And try to direct all the questions into the Q&A box rather than into the chat box. Um, We will be recording today's event but as I said before if you would rather not have your name attached to a question please do check the anonymous box in the Q&A. So yeah if you're having any technical issues please do say so in the chat box during my intro and my colleague Ben who is like flagged as tech on your screen is here today to help. And you can also email office at medact.org. Great, okay. So for those of you who are coming across Medact for the first time today, Medact's an organization that works with health workers to do research and evidence-based campaigning to challenge the root causes of global and public health inequalities. We work on issues ranging from climate change, peace and security issues, economic injustice and migration. Um, last year, we published a report called False Positives, The Pre- Prevent Counter-Extremism Policy in Healthcare, again, which was again authored by our research manager, Dr. Hilary Akid. Um, and this report that we're launching today is a follow on from that and is a contribution to our now growing body of evidence on the impact of securitizing policies and health services. So I won't go into detail about the findings of that report, mostly because we just don't have the time for that today. So I I don't want to take up the time when we should hear from our speakers. Um, But I'm sure that in the following talks, we will hear about PREVENT and the ways in which it is linked to and interacts with the vulnerability support hubs that the report that's being launched today is about. So with that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to our panel of speakers. So first, we'll be hearing from Dr. Hilary Aked, who's MedAct's Research Manager and a co-author of the report. They're also an investigative researcher with a background in political sociology. Um, Afterwards, we'll be joined by Vicky Nash, who is the Head of Policy, Campaigns, and Public Affairs at the mental health charity, Mind. And then we'll have one of of the report's co-authors, Dr. Tarek Yunus, who is now a regular speaker for us at Medact. Um, Tarek's a clinical psychologist, researcher, and lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University. And then lastly, we'll be hearing from one of the report's co-authors, Dr. Charlotte Heath-Kelly, who is a reader in politics and international studies at the University of Warwick. So after that, we'll aim to have a 30-minute Q&A session. And it's just, I just want to remind you again to please ask questions in the chat. No, that you please don't ask questions in the chat box and that you ask them instead in the QA box. And if you have comments, to put those in the chat box. Um, and please do, if you're tweeting about the event today, please do use the hashtag endprevent or tag at medact in any of your tweets today. So, yeah, I'm really pleased to be able to invite Hilary to start speaking. Thanks, Hilary.
1: Thanks so much, Reeman. and hi everyone, and um, thanks for joining us tonight. So I've got a lot to uh, whiz through, there's a lot to say about these hubs, so apologies if I'm speaking quite fast. Obviously, please go read the report to, um, to digest it at your own pace. Um, so just for a bit of context, I think a lot of people will already know um, the basics of prevent, but in case you don't, um, in 2015, um, the government passed the Counterterrorism Security Act, which made it a legal duty for um, a range of public bodies, including NHS Trust, to have due regard for the need um, to prevent people being drawn into terrorism. Um, and uh, it's, the key thing to remember is it's a pre crime programme um, based on very ill defined concepts like extremism and radicalisation, which I won't talk about now because Tarek, I think, is going to touch on them later. Um, but the important thing to understand is that um, the result of these vague, unhelpful and meaningless concepts really is that the people getting referred to prevent um, are those who are perceived to be um, liable to a quote unquote radicalization, um, perceived to be potentially violent. And that's two main groups, uh, firstly, Muslims and people of color. Uh, and secondly, people with mental health conditions because of, of stigma in society. And um, especially if you're a Muslim and with mental health conditions, you know, you, you're in danger of getting referred to prevent. Um Now, in 2016, um police noticed that d- data on people getting referred to prevent... Am I going to be... Sorry to interrupt in my spiel, but am I going to be... um I can't see myself on the screen. Is that... Should I be able to see myself? Not that people need to see my face, but... I'll just carry on, sorry. Um, I think no you're
0: fine. Huh? It's <laughs> fine, yeah, you're
1: fine. I can see okay. um so in 2016, police noticed that about half people getting referred to Prevent they thought had mental health conditions, um, but rather admit that the the issue might be that Prevent simply fuels stigma against Muslims against people with mental health conditions. Um, and uh, I'll Tara is going to talk about racism and Islamophobia as I said, and Vicky for Mind is going to talk about stigma, so I won't go into that. But what police instead thought was like, oh, we're onto something here. Um, uh, you know obviously mental health you know, is a factor in radicalization. So let's start up a new project to sort of look into that and to, and to, um, uh, to manage that. So next slide, please. Um, so in 2016, they piloted a project, thanks, with um, three hubs, um, one in the North, Greater Manchester Police, one in uh, the West Midlands, the Central Hub, and one in the South, the Metropolitan Police. And they're working with the NHS Trust shown in this slide and in addition, Greater Manchester Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust. And what these hubs do is they embed consultant psychiatrists, psychologists, and mental health nurses within counterterrorism units. So, for example, in the Metropolitan Police one, SO15, their cancer terrorism command, is where these NHS staff are based. And they're subject to tight security vetting before they get employed there. And so these healthcare professionals are working in highly securitized environments. In which counterterrorism police are firmly in charge. This is a counter-terrorism police-led project. And this is where the ethical issues um, arise. Next slide, please. Um, before I talk more about what the hubs do and what those ethical issues that are raised are, I just want to explain how we heard about them and how we investigated them. I think it's important. Um, so, despite their unique role within UK counterterrorism apparatus, very little was known about the, what the hubs do. Their activities largely remain shrouded in secrecy with very limited publicly um, available information. Um, and so, their work has therefore been subject to basically no uh, or very little scrutiny from the media, from scholars, from the public. And this lack of transparency, transparency is itself a major ethical issue because it severely limits the possibilities for proper accountability. Um, and I think this is the result of a quite deliberate secrecy on the part of counterterrorism police. So on the left here, you've got uh, the one media article about the project, which is from Reuters back in 2017, and it talks about how secretive the project is, and it talks about how psychiatrists have t- were told explicitly by the Office for Security and Counterterrorism within the Home Office not to disclose details of their findings, Ahead of a, a final report. And that final report was supposed to be published uh, shortly after the Reuters article in November 2017, but it never was. Um, and so when we asked counterterrorism police about it, or for that report, sorry, in December 2019 for the first time, they actually said for quite a while they didn't hold any relevant information. So that's our Freedom of Information top request at the top there, and that's the um, uh, National Police Chiefs Council saying at first they didn't hold any information, Um, and eventually that changed, but it took took more than a year to get this data, um, and we had to go to the Information Commissioner's Office which issued decision notice, Um, and interestingly two and a half weeks after they were forced finally to disclose these documents, the police issued a document about what they're now calling the Vulnerability Support Service, or VSS, which includes this table on the right, which I don't know if you can read it, but it's a whole list of unethical practices that the hubs definitely will not do. But our report, you know, raises the concerns that actually they are doing just that. And um, So the key point is that counterterrorism police are resisting scrutiny, I think because they know that the practices at these hubs are highly ethically dubious. And we believe it's, ur- it's urgent that there's ethical scrutiny of these hubs, and now that we have the evidence, we believe that they should be shut down. Next slide, please. So um, now in public, the, the establishment of these hubs, to the extent that there was any public information, was substantially premised on the very questionable idea that there's a the meaningful association between poor mental health and, and terrorism. Um, And it was also claimed that the hubs would um, increase access to, to mental health services for vulnerable individuals, so they're being pitched as this wonderful social good, and it would, you know, result in early intervention and improve health outcomes. Oh, and also achieve cost efficiency savings. Um, however, when you look at the internal documents, a different picture emerges and it seems very clear that the hubs are not about mental health care. So this graph on the top shows that in the North hub, um, the majority of people referred were already in the healthcare system when they got referred to prevent and then to the hubs. And um, the one on the left shows that um, from the uh, North hub, Um, the vast majority of people are already known to mental health services. So this is not the hubs helping them get in touch with mental health services. And um, on the bottom right, this quote is from the central hub. And the number one recommendation at the end of the pilot period was to clarify what on earth they're doing, because they're not clear if it's about supporting mental health or mitigating risk. And the answer is actually the project is about mitigating the perceived counterterrorism risk posed by the individuals referred. And it bears repeating that none of these individuals have been referred because they have committed a crime. It's on the basis of uh, suspicion alone. It's a pre-crime program. And the hubs exercise this risk management function, which is their real function, in two main ways, which I'll talk a little bit more about very quickly and shortly. Firstly, um, they are a way to facilitate police access to health information, and I'll explain how that works. Um, And secondly, they're a channel for police to um, exert influence on mainstream mental health services. Next slide, please. So um, why do we think the hubs are concerning? Well, they've existed for five years now and about 4,000 people have been assessed, some as young as six years old. And despite the lack of independent evaluation, the police are currently rolling this out nationally by what they call Project Cicero. And our report raises, serious concerns about a number of issues based on the evidence in the documents we obtained. Um, These issues are mental health stigma and Islamophobia, which as I said, uh, Vicky and Tarek, after me are going to discuss, Um, pathologization, essentially the use of sub-diagnostic thresholds and the dangerous move towards, you know, potentially treating radical or extremist views, uh, quote unquote, as a mental health condition. And Charlotte's gonna cover that later. the influence of um, spurious and racist, frankly, um, pre-crime security concerns on mental health treatment. So things like mental health assessments conducted in the presence of police, intensified monitoring of patient medication regimes, um, and based on very dubious counterterrorism concerns, and even decisions to detain people under the Mental Health Act. And I'll show you a slide on that shortly. Um, health workers are also being Um, pressurized to act beyond their remit so they're being asked to help assess uh, individuals likely future counterterrorism risk because they use combined mental health and counterterrorism risk gradings they're engaging in what appears to be quote unquote de-radicalization work which is a very dubious scientific validity and finally health workers are being pressurized to surveil and monitor patients and I'll show you a slide on that shortly Um, a few final things is um, they are uh, they appear to be a means for coercively undermining individuals' right to refuse de radicalization. I'll show you a case on that. Um, confidentiality and um, is another big issue, and I'll, I'll show you a case on that. I'm actually aware that I'm running out of time. So if you can go to the next slide, I'll just whiz through in each of these slides uh, what, what it shows you. Here's a case of a person with psychosis um, who had been receiving home treatment. Um, police decide that there are some unacceptable unknowns in this person's case, and they press for this person to receive secure admission to a hospital and prevent discharge. Now, we think this sounds a lot like uh, counterterrorism police strong arming health professionals, and health professionals do take into account police concerns about risk, but unacceptable unknown, uh, you know, unknown information is not the kind of information they would um, you know, normally take into account. Next
0: slide, please, I'm running out of time. Um, Wait, I'm just going to, Hill, just yeah, so you know, yeah. you can take another five minutes. It's fine. Oh, really? You okay. Need to run I'll due. stop
1: talking so fast. I was though. under time. Yeah, I just want to say. You... Oh, thank you. Um, great. So it, here's, a, here's some stuff about how uh, health workers have been co-opted into surveillance. Um, you can see these quotes that litter the documents about, you know, the need for sophisticated health and police eyes um in the first quote in the second it says very explicitly that mental health teams could be asked to monitor um patients behaviors for example things they say things they do um and in the third slide this is referred to as establishing trip wires um so basically um impressing upon health workers that you know if a patient does or says a, cert- a certain thing that has to trigger re-referral to prevent so the report talks about how that actually could like um you know prevent rehabilitation for certain categories of racialized people, when they have a a mental health relapse or something. Okay, next slide, please. This is an example of what we think looks like potential coercion at the hubs. It's it's really quite worrying. Um, It's about a case study about an individual with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, who previously failed to engage with treatment and also failed to engage with channel. Um, That's the government's uh, quote-unquote de-radicalization program. Um, And what happens is um, this person is verbally abusing ethnic minorities um, and has had an an escalation in his behaviour, as as they phrase it, um, sectioned under the Mental Health Act um, and treated and following treatment is now suddenly willing to engage in the channel process. So, you know, we don't know all the details of this case, but it's worrying that it raises really, really worrying questions about whether the use of medicine here is um, coercively um, forcing this person to cooperate in this police channel process. Okay, and then my final slide is about confidentiality and criminalization. So the next slide, please, thank you. And um, so, yeah, as I said, one of the main aims for these hubs really is to circumvent normal confidentiality expectations. So the NHS staff are referred to as an in-house team. Um, And this quote talks about how useful they've found having this in-house team. And it says, the quote at the bottom says, officers reported that prior to the team existing, they had experienced health professionals as somewhat hesitant in sharing potentially important information about their service users with police officers. Um, That's because they, of course, respect confidentiality, legislation and, and guidance. And if there's not a real public health threshold, a public health justification, sorry, or it's a genuine safeguarding consent, uh, concern made with consent, then, you know, information shouldn't be being shared. But it says the presence of plaid, which is um, prevent liaison and diversion, that's the South hub, London, the Metropolitan Police one, greatly assisted in this communication. And this happen, happens because in the report explains, they use this kind of what they call a consultancy model, where the health workers are said to be providing a service primarily to the police and not to the, um, not to the patient concern, So they're kind of like a loophole in confidentiality kind of guidance and how it works. But we think it's really problematic that these health workers are there seem to be providing a service to police. Okay, I've got two more minutes, so I'm actually gonna be okay. Um, I just wanna add, because it needs to be mentioned that we think health workers could be potentially implicated in criminalization and through this because the, the report makes very clear based on the documents that, um, The hubs are actually also helping with live investigations um, and their information that they help to gather can be used in the pursuit of convictions. So we think again, that's, you know, highly problematic for the health workers at this this hub. And and just a really quick word on the overall implications of this. Projects like this and Prevent more broadly in the health sector are only going to um, foster the, the already like, you know, deep seated mistrust of racialized communities. Um, w- w- with the healthcare system. Um, and we think, you know, the hub should be scrapped and prevent should be scrapped. I'll leave it there, thanks.
0: Thanks very much, Hill. Um, also, sorry that I, I don't know, I must incite so much for you <laughs> with my timekeeping. <laughs> but Thanks, <laughs> thanks for, I, I was under time, so luckily you did actually get an additional five minutes. <laughs> so yeah, thanks so much. And yeah, I, even though I, I've read the report, I still find it really shocking to read, for example, the case studies and some of the information that you got from the FOIs. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for that. And there was a question, just so, someone asked in the chat whether the slides would be made available afterwards, but Hill, maybe you can just answer that at the end, you don't need to answer now, or you can answer in the chat box. Um, so I'll just be handing over to Vicky now, who, as I said before, is the head of policy campaigns and public affairs at the mental health charity Mind. So, yeah, please do take it away, Vicky. We can't hear you.
2: I've got like a double clicker is the double clicker that prevented me from talking, but I'm here now. Thank you for letting me know. It's always someone's got to do it, right? Um, So thank you so much for uh, uh, having us along to speak on on such an important topic. Um, I want to give a bit of background about about Mind and our work, um, and then focus my comments um, on exploring those links between mental health um, problems and terrorism and the, the resulting stigma from that so Minds mine's a mental health charity we operate in England and Wales and we campaign for change and provide services like our information service an online peer support community and through face-to-face services delivered through our local Minds. we recently launched a new strategy um, in which we've made a commitment to understand more about the issues that matter to communities which we haven't done enough to support in the past and use our voice to speak out when we see injustice And mental health radicalization and terrorism is one of those areas with race, religion and culture all playing a key role. So to set the scene, it's important to remember that mental health, policing and counterterrorism, they don't exist objectively outside of our societies. They're embedded and influenced by the societies and the institutions, including institutionally racist ones. Just as we've seen how schizophrenia diagnosis has changed from being classified as a non-threatening disease and a diagnosis um, mainly given to white middle class women. um, That shifted in the 60s and 70s to, to now what we see it as, where it's associated with hostility, mistrust and violence. And subsequently, we've seen much higher rates diagnosed amongst black men. So it's therefore important that we reflect on the societies and the structures and the bias in our current delivery of mental health care, especially when it intersects with other social institutions such as counterterrorism. So what do we know and understand about these links between mental health and and terrorism? In short, not a lot. Um, There's a complex process by which mental health problems combine or interact with other factors during radicalization. And that's complete, it's so poorly understood. Um, We know that lone actors can display higher rates of mental health problems than group-based terrorists. And there's more prevalence amongst singular issue attackers when compared to those motivated by right wing um, or Islamist ideologies. Um, We also know that there are mental health risk factors in the background of, of some of those lone actors, but those facts and factors are not uncommon. So we can't pinpoint why in some rare cases people go down that route when the vast majority of people don't. And based on the current evidence, it's not like Prevent or the vulnerability support hubs are picking up on that We also know that some lone actors are young people who have either had mental health problems or are at increased risk. Others are more loosely described as alienated or troubled that are getting picked up. Nearly every theory out there is deeply contested or not been properly explored. And that's the nub of the problem when it comes to the research around this. So it's no surprise that our lack of understanding about what's really going on results in a set of interventions which either don't work or we don't know if they work or not because people won't give us the evidence. There's no tried and tested tools to identify people who have been radicalised, who are at risk of radicalisation or who's likely to carry out a terrorist attack. It's, it's done on a case by case basis and therefore the judgment and attitude of, to risk of the professionals involved. And this is where racism and Islamophobia within counterterrorism and anti-radicalisation interacts with int- institutionalised race- racism and a misunderstanding of culture, of religion, of spiritual beliefs, of practice within health and mental health services. And as a result, we've seen significantly higher rates of referrals of Muslims and people of colour into channel into prevent from health services. And that has such a negative impact on the individuals involved, but also the affected communities at large. We also see this disproportionality in referrals um, to to vulnerability support hubs, which the report so um, clearly outlines. And of course, there's still hardly any... uh, after, well, a bit more now you've uh, persevered with your, your campaign to get those FOIs out, but very little publicly available evidence to help us assess whether the current approaches are working or not. So without that, how can we continue to invest public money in such programs without knowing what impact they're having or whether they're making the situation better or worse? The result is we end up with a fairly toxic melting point of race and ethnicity, religion, culture, racism, Islamophobia, mental health, dangerousness, it's a classic in mental health, dangerousness, radicalization, and terrorism. And it manifests in different ways to different communities, of course. But the overall impact is on exacerbating any existing mistrust between Muslim, Black, Asian and other ethnic minority communities, exactly like what Hillary was saying beforehand, between those communities and between public health services, including mental health services. This results in people not wanting to or, or not wanting to come forward to seek help or ask for support. And it's not only that individuals won't seek help and ask for support; it's their families and friends that won't, that don't want to encourage their loved ones to seek help for fear of them, of, of what will happen to them, of them being locked up in some way or another. Because we know that many people who experience mental health problems don't seek help in general, so this is already exacerbating an existing problem that we've got when people are coming forward to talk about mental health. And particularly when it comes to issues around violence, there's often a fear that, um, that, that, that they're, they're, they're really worried about being stigmatized or locked up if they talk about violent thoughts or urges. So we really need to encourage an openness which allows people to seek help and to access that, that help more uh, easily. And of course the knock on impact, um, particularly around young, young people who are caught up in these measures is of significant concern to us. Sadly, we've seen cuts to services, money not reaching the front line despite promises, increased disruption due to COVID and increased mental health admissions, particularly for certain diagnoses. But we all know, but we know that it's actually highly likely all those young people that are struggling with their mental health or have been labelled as at risk or troubled or alienated, this is their language, not ours, would benefit from being able to access culturally competent and age-appropriate services and support. And in a world where that happens, we're likely to see real benefits, including the the reduction in the risk of lone actor violence and far fewer unintended consequences of inappropriately labeling young people. The solution, at least in part, can be found in developing programs of support based on the needs of individuals and communities, ensuring they get the right support at the right time in the right environment. In order to improve society's mental health, we need a much better joined up approach between all different services, social care, education, housing, welfare, policing and health, but not in the way that we're seeing with these vulnerability support hubs, based on mutual trust and understanding with a focus on the individual and what's right for those individuals. The first step is providing that wraparound care um, is, by, is really for government to take a kind of cross-government strategy which puts mental health at the heart of every department's of agenda and prioritise mental health, not the other priorities. This situation or this strategy must sit alongside previous commitments that have been made to improve mental health services, because with so many of us still being let down by the services that are meant to help us, urgent action is needed to improve people's day-to-day lives. And finally, when it, when it comes to comments made on the relationship between crime, violence, and mental health, we would strongly urge caution. The vast majority of us experiencing mental health problems are unlikely to ever pose a risk to others. We are far more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. So we need a much greater understanding on, on these issues. And that's crucial if we're going to continue to tackle the stigma and discrimination long attached to mental health problems. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you so much, Vicky. That was yeah really incredible. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us today. Um, it's just great to get that kind of insight that obviously you have from, from working at MIND and from MIND's like many, many years working in the mental health field. So thank you so much. Um, so we'll be hearing from the um, We'll be moving on to hear from Tarek now, but before um, before Tarek starts, I just want to remind you that, yeah, I think my colleague Ben put it in the chat box already, but please do um, put your, Q- your questions in the Q&A box, and thank you to those who have already um, asked questions in there. So, yeah, just thanks very much for doing that, and thank you, Vicky. Um, and yeah, please do go ahead, Tarek.
3: Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, first of all, want to just give a quick shout out to meta uh, and especially Hillary. They did such a fantastic job leading on this report. Um, so I'm going to try to accept Hillary's challenge and perhaps even speak faster than they did. Um, I, I have a lot to cover. so. I'm just gonna go ahead and begin with the most obvious statistic that should strike us as odd, which is that a racialized Muslim, according to the statistics, and you can see in the report how we made these calculations, are uh, at least 23 times more likely to be referred uh, to these mental health hubs for Islamism than a white, racial individual for far-right extremism. Now, I have to here emphasize that this is a very conservative number because if we look at uh, the report, we'll see also that For example, one thing we're not including is converts in the way this was calculated. And there are converts who are being referred, white British converts who are being referred uh, to these hubs as as racialized Muslims. Second of all, um, it's really important to to understand when we're talking about institutional racism and Vicky just gave a really, really fantastic overview of this, so I'm not gonna dwell on it. Um, We need to always remember that the vast impact of PREVENT can't be reduced to statistics, to referral statistics, right? So the impact of Prevent, actually, the, 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 the damage of Prevent happens before the statistics itself. Um, and of course, the final thing is that, as Vicky also explained, you know, mental health has been riddled with institutional racism. But I'm going to make the argument right now that even if mental health was, quote, unquote, an ideal institution that, you know, doesn't have any racism whatsoever, that these mental health hubs would still be A racist apparatus simply through uh, the door of extremism. Um, And I think here I'll just quickly explain two things. One is about uh, Islamophobia, and then I'm just going to skip actually the points of stigma. When I'm talking about Islamophobia, one thing, there's two things I just want to highlight very quickly. First of all, Islamophobia is not necessarily just the uh, sort of hostility towards Muslims in in a way that it's often reduced to. But Islamophobia can also be understood in the management of ideal British Muslim thoughts and behavior. This is how prevent was also introduced uh, or introduced fundamental British values into education. And we need to remember that the vast majority of prevent referrals are coming from education. Um, The second thing we need to remember is that perceived Muslimness uh, the signifiers of Muslimness uh, is racialized to threat uh, to the threat of terrorism in the public imaginary. This is something that's very well documented in research. When people conjure the idea of a terrorist, the thought of a terrorist, it is there, it, it conjures these racialized Muslim signifiers, uh, racialized Muslimness, or whatever that might appear as. Um, and I I, I, th- I thought I read this study recently that I thought was was so important actually, and it's important for this report as well, one was trying to understand how to understand, how do we understand where the fear of terrorism comes from? And the, the common presumption is that it comes from a fear of crime, that people fear terrorism because they fear crime. But actually research has found that the fear of terrorism is actually much more associated with negative attitudes towards Muslims. Now, when it came to this idea of uh, the management of ideal Muslim thought and behavior. I'm drawing here on on a policy document within the NHS, um, which talks about grievances. And I think you need to again always come through this door of extremism. What, how is con- how is extremism conjured? And we see through um, this this one slide that you know when we're talking about grievances. To be talking about a misconception and or rejection of UK foreign policy, distrust of Western media reporting, perceptions that UK government policy is discriminatory. And if anyone is uh, attentive to the way all these points are framed, these are all racialized to Muslims. And it's particularly important when we think right now about the context such as Palestine, right? What's the ideal way of talking about uh, Israel and Palestine? And we already know cases what by which uh, Palestinian activism has been uh, managed through prevent. Uh, this this one case example uh, was very famous uh, in the media. And he you know he alleged that police warned him not to talk about Palestine in school, and further claimed that staff members had approached his fourteen-year-old brother uh, to stop being so radical. Um, but, you know, Prevent Watch has also told me, and Prevent Watch, which collates so many examples of, um, of, of grievances uh, through, through prevent referrals, they, they, this isn't an isolated case. Often, you know, Palestine is, is actually a very, is very much a reoccurring issue of what's an ideal way to talk about this. Now, All right,
0: can I just quickly yeah. ask you to just put it into presenter mode so that we can see it easier?
3: Oh, I thought this was presenter. No, yeah,
0: no, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's like your mode. That's,
3: yeah. Yes, I will do that right Thank away.
4: You.
3: Is that better? It's actually better for me as well. So now we understand the sort of the way the, the issue of extremism in and of itself, it's racialization. Uh, the way it uh, harkens on particular uh, issues. Now, um, what, what I find is very fascinating when you look at this report. Now, the, 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 the central hubs were unique in that they were doing a mental health assessment for every single person that was being referred. We're talking about adolescents, right? Majority racialized Muslim adolescents that are being referred. Um, and what's interesting is that they found that w- when making a mental health assessment, they found that most of them uh, had emotional or behavioral dysregulation, which is a very—it's uh, it's a very sort of wishy-washy to say, way to say that they have some kind of emotional behavioral issue. There's two points to point out here. One has to do with very low distress, and they—the police themselves remark that's really odd. Why is why are they why is there so little distress and so high emotional behavioral disorders or other things? And they—they they themselves remark, oh, we must be overdiagnosing issues of distress into into other categories, right? This is what happens when you start making a mental health assessment for everyone. You actually start finding things. But moreover, think about Palestine. Think about so many of the racialized Muslim youth, especially, who feel very helpless, uh, who have these sort of emotional reactions to uh, to what's going on in Palestine, you know, the, the, the set little colonial project that's occupying Palestine, you know, so how How do they they feel? How do they react? And is that being right now diagnosed? Um, I'm going to quickly just briefly uh, go over this notion of colorblindness as my second theme. Um, As anyone who's ever heard me speak about this before, one thing that's very interesting that Prevent does is that it recognizes that the threat of terrorism is racialized to Muslims in the public consciousness. And in one one way it, it tries to address that commonsensical commonsensical association is by sort of raising it and erasing it by saying here, as you can see in the slide, what factors might make a child vulnerable to radicalization, you know, deprivation, bullying, attending the local mosque, adolescence. And the whole point of the slide as a very banal um, sort of anti-racist exercise is that you're not supposed to click attending the local mosque, right? So when you click it, you're told you're wrong, go back, unclick it, and you know, finish and get your prevent, prevent, uh, certificate. So there's this constant trying to sort of, we'd recognize that Muslims are racialized, um, and Muslimness are, is racialized to, ter- to threat and terrorism. And it's this constant trying to don't, don't, don't be, uh, racist essentially. Um, but another way that actually happens is also through this very, um, generic concepts of psychological vulnerability. We know mental health is a very palpable way of uh, overlooking issues of race, right? We all share a common universal psychological configuration. If I'm vulnerable, if you're vulnerable, anybody who's listening uh, is vulnerable and uh, this ideological ideological virus infiltrates our minds at the right time, then we can all potentially become terrorists, but that's a way of overlooking that issue. Now, I'm gonna quickly just take on these two examples. And we know one of the things that the, the reports, if you, if you end up reading it, does very well is sort of overlook and completely erase race. So race is absolutely erased in these reports, but they come up constantly, you know, through the subtleties of colorblindness, um, either very explicitly in, in the case on the right where Mr. X was referred to prevent uh, following concerns that he had converted to Islam in prison and then also was acting strangely, right? So here, that's probably one of the few times where it's, Made very explicit. But if you look at case study number one on the left, we see that there's, an, there's a man who's just acting strangely uh, around London sites. And that caused suspicion. But there is an element of racialization here, which is very, very significant, that's being dismissed. You know, what kind of bodies in public sites will provoke police suspicion over others? but the police are not addressing this in these reports. And of course, these are are the cases that are supposed to be made most palpable to get as much funding as possible. Um, Other ways uh, in the report whereby colorblindness is really incredible, um, and I'm I'm very cognizant, I'm almost out of time. Uh, We see here in terms of referrals of ideology, you see here extreme right wing, Islamist extremism, okay, fine, all right? We can assume those are white people, those are racialized Muslims. Oh, suddenly just vulnerable to radicalization, anti Semitic, threats to commit mass killings, and other. Well, the issue here is that if we understand now the racialization of extremism, the racialization of threat, the politicization of particular issues, and their and their associated securitization, we can imagine that everyone here is vulnerable to radicalization might potentially be Muslim, and everyone who was referred for anti-Semitism was Muslim. Everyone who who committed who who's other and you know and also uh, threatened for mass killing, they're Muslim. So in fact, this is one of the ways in which colorblindness is is actually actively employed to uh, avoid the charge of racism. And uh, I'm gonna end on this uh, note on migrants and refugees, especially because this is very, very significant. And I'm I'm worried that we're going to underplay the significance of this. In the Northern hubs, 48% of the referrals were migrants, refugees, asylum seekers. And they explicitly state, uh, you know, sort of vulnerabilities that might be related to Uh, their migration history, you know, uh, to their traumas, you know, the sort of interventions that are necessary for that. But, you know, anyone, uh, my background is sort of in cultural psychology, anyone who deals with uh, migrants and refugees, we know the complexity of these cases, right? We're talking about individuals who may have experienced various forms of traumas. And now all of a sudden, there's a very almost egregious link between uh, racialized minorities, i.e. Um, you know, most likely Muslims, uh, migrants, I as- saw asylum seekers, sort of border policing now and mental health. And this is all sort of being co- co-integrated um, into, into one hub. Um, and I'm, I guess I'll just leave it on this slide. I mean, I think this slide I'd like to just point out um, is supposed to talk about the groups inspiring extremism uh, with those of the primary diagnosis, schizophrenia or other delusional disorders. As Vicky had mentioned, Uh, Schizophrenia has a very long history of of, uh, racialization uh, and racialized groups have been uh, diagnosed, uh, especially the Black community, have been diagnosed differently. And what's interesting here is that if we think about, first of all, on the one hand, how Uh, Muslims may be uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia differently according to their to the sort of their idioms of distress. If they talk about jinn, if they talk about other things, we know that that's been in the West commonly associated with uh, with symptoms of delusion or psychosis, etc. But finally, I'm just going to end with this point. Look at this graph. It's on the left. It has Al-Qaeda and then has Daesh and then it has not available and it has not inspired by a specific group and then not known and then other group. And I think this graph is just a great way of exemplify just how uh, so much of the way categories have been created in these hubs and especially in these reports. I mean, this it's, it's unbelievable that something like this would get published, I'll be honest. And it's unbelievable that it's actually served as a basis for even further funding and to be launched uh, nationally. I'll end there.
0: Thank you, Tarek, thanks so much. Um, yeah, interesting to hear specifically you talk about how, yeah, asylum seekers and refugees in the North are being you know referred to this hub d- disproportionately and that's really worrying. Um, so yeah, thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to highlight to you all that there's now over 120 people in the call, which is really great to see because yeah, this is just such an important piece of research And I just think it's really important that people are able to become informed about it and hopefully speak to others about it. But please also do check out the report itself. Um, So we're gonna go on now to hear from um, Dr. Charlotte Heath-Kelly who is an academic at University of Warwick, a reader in politics and international relations. Um, So yeah, please do take it away, Charlotte.
4: Um, hi, everybody. Um, it's it's wonderful to see you all here. And um, I'm very grateful to have been you know, allowed to contribute to to this excellent report. And um, just the leadership of of MEDACT has just been incredible. Um, I strongly encourage you to please download the report. Um, also, I strongly encourage you to fact check us because we're very comfortable with that and med have published all of the reports of the internal, the internal reports of the hubs alongside our analysis. Some of the cases we're telling you about are pretty extreme. Um, I urge you to check our report and then cross-reference with the independent, eva- uh, sorry, the internal evaluation so that you can see that, you know, this is, this is real, this is really happening, and this is um, horrifying. Um, I'm going to, attempt to go through the ethical challenges of the hubs in 10 minutes. Um, These ethical challenges primarily include um, the transfer of psychiatric techniques uh, associated with forensic medicine, so those um, who have committed a crime, um, the transfer of those techniques to pre-crime interventions, also how the activities of healthcare workers are, are being pushed beyond the health remit through participation with these hubs, the securitization of health, um, and coercion and pathologization. So you can see that I'm not gonna get through all that. Let me start with a story. Um, It might seem very obvious to us that ethical codes are needed to govern psychiatry um, and psychology. Uh, it, It should strike us as obvious, but you might be surprised to learn that the first The codification of psychiatric ethics occurred in only 1977 um, by the World Psychiatric Association. And there's a particular story of relevance here as to why that happened. Um, What prompted this? Basically, the idea of extremism and the involvement of psychiatric professionals in counterterrorism policing in the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union had been detaining democracy activists uh, under a quasi-diagnosis of sluggish schizophrenia because their ideas were so radically upsetting. Um, This was a horrendous human rights abuse. Uh, Western psychiatric associations were so alarmed by what was going on and the reports that they were hearing that they started pushing the World Psychiatric Association to codify ethics specifically around this issue that the cooperation between psychiatry um, and policing and and intelligence services must be regulated because of what happened in the Soviet Union and that was what provoked the World Psychiatric Association to develop the first code of ethics which then proliferated across national professional associations. So the very root of what we're discussing here um, comes from the securitization um, of political beliefs and their pathologization uh, as illnesses um, and the potential to even detain people um, on the basis of, of those kinds of suspicions, which as we've seen from the case studies earlier, um, there are three in the report where this happens in the UK under the hubs. So I encourage you to think about how far liberal democracy has travelled since the 70s, where we were happy to completely forbid this through codes of ethics and how far things have slipped since then with the practices that are in this report that uh, we are releasing today. Our first major concern um, with the ethical um, issues involved here um, we've kind of highlighted under the label of activities beyond the health remit. So when you talk to people involved in the hubs they like to tell you that um, this is about providing pathways to mental health care um, for people that have been referred to prevent I think we've conclusively shown today that most of them are either already in contact with mental health services or do not have any mental illness to be diagnosed. There's very few that actually sit in the middle that weren't in contact with services but needed services. So what are they actually doing? Um, the Northern Hub in, in particular, uh, please do check the um, internal evaluation reports. The Northern Hub has predominantly been practicing something they call disruptive safeguarding, Um, and this seems to be the practice of the hub, the psychiatrist accessing a person's medical information from the local mental health team and then giving it to the counterterrorism police to assist prosecution. This disruptive safeguarding um, is completely Uh, alien to the ethical guidelines that are provided by um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, where if you are collaborating with the police, the college underlines that you've got to be very careful about the dual allegiance that you you have in that situation, and you need to put a great emphasis on the patient's best interests. So to be pursuing prosecution and accessing their data and sharing that data um, strikes us as... Quite troubling, to say the least. Furthermore, the disrupted kind of what well, the activities behind the health remit, uh, as Hilary showed us earlier, um, the hubs are asking mental health practitioners to monitor specific cases and refer information on worrying speech and tripwires back to them. Um, so this is obtaining this information, um, basically, in to pathologise um their political beliefs we've already heard about the case of the man who was found to be suspiciously visiting tourist sites in london and was found to be risky and then was referred by um, the london counter-terrorism police into the mental health hub uh, to be assessed there and on the basis of those suspicions um the, there was a decision because he was visiting treat uh tourist sites there was a decision to intensify his treatment regime um Obviously, there aren't. we don't have all the details because the internal documents don't provide them, but think about the case studies that they would present and why they would pre- present them. They think these are the best case studies. They think that this is you know, what they want to show to their funders to ask for more money. And that, that is all over the evaluation documents is the, the need for more funding for the hubs. Okay, so securitization of health. There's a few cases that we outline in the report that we've drawn from the internal documents where um, prevent officers are attending mental health assessments uh, in people's homes. Now, that's a process that seems to have come over from forensic um, psychiatric practice where if the police feel that the person might become violent um, and they have to have good reason for this, then the police can attend with them to to protect the staff during the assessment. We don't get that sense from these internal documents at all. That's never mentioned. Instead, the presence of the prevent officer seems to be linked to identifying ideological content and flagging if there is a a risk there or not that's associated with counterterrorism. All extremely dubious, given that there's no real valid scientific basis for this. So we've got mental health assessments, you know, police coming to your home uh, with a warrant and doing a mental health assessment with a psychiatrist there and sometimes more than one police officer. Um, It's pretty violent. Furthermore, there's plenty of cases where um, medication regimes have been put under increased surveillance through the activities of the hubs communicating with the uh, practitioners at the local level, um, including people's medication being drastically upped. Um, on the basis of police suspicions, not any crime, not any kind of conduct that's been committed, just suspicion. and as we've heard very much uh, yep yeah, two minutes I see it um, emphasized very well by Tarek that these suspicions are racialized in the vast majority of cases. so this is this is not okay. and I encourage you to check the report for the details of the three people who ended up sectioned uh, in inpatient care after police concerns were passed through the hubs uh, to the local mental health teams. They were already under the care of mental health teams. So what kind of suspicions and what kind of influence did those police suspicions have that led to these people being sectioned? Uh, And then suddenly, in the case that Hillary showed us, sudden willingness after that to cooperate with PREVENT after being sectioned. I mean, that's uh, very worrying to us on the basis of potential coercion um there is no discussion of consent for mental health uh, assessments in the internal documents at all it's just not just not there um and as we know from previous studies of prevent it just doesn't happen a lot of the time consent is not obtained most of the time um sub diagnostic thresholds are being employed by the central hub in particular one minute i see it um This really worries us because it's so vulnerable to the influence of like racialized suspicions. So a lot of the um, people deemed to have complex needs in the words of the central hub, they actually just have behavioral or emotional difficulties which is a much vaguer conception and it's certainly not uh, defined as a mental illness specifically. Um, And they use a formulation approach, and this is being rolled out nationally now, a formulation approach to weave this together in a narrative about how someone's situation as an asylum seeker or as a migrant or as a homeless person or as an unemployed person, how those situations of precarity um, influence a decision about terrorism risk and one's mental state. And all these factors come together in a very vague and unspecified way so that people are flagged as red, amber, or green on the basis of this combined assessment. And as I've got to finish now, I really want to highlight that um, there's no evidence base for this. There's also no crime that's been committed that could um, allow such steps to be taken rather this is all operating in the in the pre-crime space on the basis of suspicion um, and referral to prevent and you do not get referred to prevent if you've actually done something you get referred to pursue and the counter-terrorism police if you've actually committed a crime so this is explicitly people who have done nothing wrong Um, and that really horrifies me and I'll, i'll stop there and encourage you to read the report I did not meet Hillary's challenge to get through the final points.
0: Thank you, Charlotte. I think you did a brilliant job, actually. So, um, yeah, don't be hard on yourself. I thought you got through a lot in there and I think, like, really kind of provided a lot of context and background for people who are joining us today. Because um, I know a lot of the kind of content within the report is, like, quite technical, so I think it is good to get that kind of art- overarching um just background behind the hubs and the concerns with it um so yeah thanks so much to all of our really brilliant speakers who also mostly stayed like pretty much on time so we're not running that much over um and yeah i just wanted to now kind of open out the q a we've already had quite a lot of questions in the q a box and a lot of really good questions as well um, So just wanted to say um, if you are still going to submit a question in the Q&A box you can do so anonymously Um, and uh, yeah so I'm just gonna start off by reading out questions we're gonna do three at a time Um, and just a note for the speakers I'd really appreciate if when you're responding you could just be as like kind of short and concise as possible just so that we can Try to have at least two rounds of questions because we have so many good questions in the box. So um, yeah, I'll just start off, and I'm going to read three out at time. So um, so first question: Are there limits to cultural competency in services? See, It seems to be the new buzzword for mental health char- trusts and charities. Um, but not sure how culturally competent you can be without challenging the political status quo, and that's um, from an, an anonymous. That's an anonymous question. Um, another one. Um, could I ask a more technical question about the, how the referral system works? Potentially a good one for you, Hill. Um, can those working outside the police refer directly, or is it always that once a referral is made to prevent? that the police can choose to refer into the hubs and do the hubs communicate back with their assessments to GPs or community mental health teams? And that's from Kitty Worthing. Um, And another question, um, let me just see. Does the whole notion around terrorism or extremism being, mental, being a mental health issue or something detected psychologically not mirror early racist ideas about the inferior biology or brains of non-white races? Or does this observation seem too far-fetched? And that's from Nihal Abdullah. Um, and that, yeah. So I don't know if I need to repeat the first question around cultural competency in mental health trusts and charities um and yeah go for it
2: yeah I can take it but I, I think I'd be interested in in others views on this as well um I mean you're right it does uh there's always buzzwords flying around um in in uh in the mental health world and in the wider health world I mean I think we've uh at mind we've been talking about cultural competency for a number of years now um uh but um uh but it's I think you're right. I think it probably isn't quite fit for purpose now. I think it's it's what we've got at the moment in a way that talks to that, talks to those issues, but it doesn't really get under the bonnet, so to speak, of some of the broader issues around political and power imbalances um, and and what that means. So uh, I think we're going to need to have a new language around that a better language a smarter language something that's a bit more meaningful because what we do know that mental health services um uh it's it's great to have it's a tick it becomes a tick box uh and you're like oh culturally competent done that with the minimum of effort and not really getting into the heart of what i think some of the fundamentals are around that so that's a that's a really great question actually and um, and so I think you're right and I'm going to take that away and go back to the team and say can we think of a do we need to do we need to think of our own language in that rather than just repeating something which is probably not fit for purpose now so thank you.
0: Can I
3: add something to that very quickly. So just in addition to what Vicky was saying, I mean, I think it's really important to understand that cultural competency is also, is practiced differently actually in different settings and there's different understandings of it, whereby they might just do ethnic matching, but there's other ways of of doing it. But I just want to highlight actually specifically in relation to prevent and and in terms of a consequence of it. I think when more and more people learn about me, I've been getting more and more people um, seeking therapy and they're seeking not cultural competency, competency, right? They're not, for example, if they're Muslim, they're not asking for a racialized Muslim, they're asking for someone who's politically conscious and politically aware of prevent. So we've almost, I think, reached the limits of cultural competency. In the United, United States, there's uh, Jonathan Metzl, for example, he, he talks about structural competency. So having an understanding of these policies and how they might potentially uh, uh, impact the therapeutic space. But I think we really need, um, almost politically conscious uh, competency uh, but that's one which sort of goes already directly in confrontation with the policies with the with the with the settings themselves right with the policies in the mental health settings um, so much so I've actually even had people who are not racialized Muslims come to me because they know oh this person is politically safe to share my concerns with um, even though they might not have any particular grievances they just don't like the idea of a securitized setting. So there, there's there, that's probably one of the biggest things that we need to, uh, one of the biggest gaps, I think right now in, in, uh, in the shadow of Prevent. Thanks, guys. Uh,
1: yeah. Sorry, should I come back on the second question, which is yeah. about how the referral process works, a bit of a technical one? Um, yeah, as far as we can understand from the HUD documents, This isn't something that uh, people are being referred directly to from any other service. It's a sort of second step. So once people are referred to prevent from health or from prison or from education, then police, if they suspect this person has a mental health condition, can refer to the hubs. Um, But yes, then the hubs, even if that person has been referred from health to prevent to a hub will then go back to the health services um and to communicate with them usually to request information or it, it seems to kind of seek to influence uh the risk assessments being made by those health professionals um yeah uh, so that's gps community mental health teams a lot so i hope that answers your question kitty
4: i can try and answer nihal's question on the uh eugenics history and if there's a link um i'm i'm working on a project right now um that's going to take a while longer to really finish the answer to this but looking at the history of of how these ideas kind of transferred through uh eugenics movement through the earliest ideas of kind of anticipatory crime prevention all the way through the 20th century um as they try and they kind of change slightly um there's a the long story basically the answer is yes there is a link Um, There is a historical process of of transfer of these ideas that originally associated in a very blunt way um, racialized status with um, deficiency. Um, They've changed across the years, but they still echo through this kind of crime prevention uh, discourse and now extremism prevention discourse. How they change, the one thing I'll say about this is that they're far more insidious now. And very um, dangerous. They remain very dangerous because they are so insidious because they hide behind the language of risk factors. So rather than taking the individual body, individual racialized body, it's broken up now in the discourse around prevention, um, that it's around, it's called dividuation, to move to the tiny microscopic factors that make up the individual. So it kind of appears less racist Um, unless you choose to really look into it uh, and get the stats and the figures as to what's going on here or really analyse the language. So yes, there is a link. Um, It's far more insidious these days than it used to be. And I I hope that um, goes some way to answering the question.
0: Thanks so much. Um, I don't know if anyone else wants to come in on that or if we should go to the next round of questions. Okay let's go to the next round. I mean there's now 31 questions in the box which is really incredible and I just want to say we're obviously not going to be able to get to all of those questions but if the speakers are okay with it you know I would just like to invite those who feel like their questions haven't been answered to email medact saying oh I would like to you know know a bit more about this and potentially we can then you know put forward that to the relevant speaker so yeah Just to say because there's so many great questions and I don't want to lose them all. Um, So another round of questions. We have a question from Rachel Piper asking, how does it link to the Serenity Integrated Mentoring or SIM scheme and the Stop SIM campaign? Um, And we've got another question um, from Mashal Iftikhar, who's a core psychiatric trainee. who asks, what legal backing do we have, if any, to resist being co-opted into handing over patient information to mental health workers colluding with police or doing mental health assessments for police to gather information? And then a final question specifically for Charlotte, how would you respond to the argument that Prevent is concerned with safeguarding and protecting the vulnerable in the pre-crime space? The Prevent discourse often compares Prevent to children at risk, Exploitation, preventing children getting involved in gangs. How would you counter that safeguarding argument in the pre-crime space? And that's from Sean Calvin. Um, so I don't know who wants to start off. The question about SIM.
2: Yeah, SIM. I can I can take SIM. Um, and for those of you that, that don't know, do do have a look online around the Stop SIM campaign. Um, uh though the, the organizers of that have been doing an incredible job and i think actually quite a lot of us included quite a, quite a lot of us um uh, were really su- surprised that this was actually happening and it's a it's a, it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a scheme uh which uh is is largely where, where there are linkages i think is it's because it's the relationship between the health and the police again so it's in a different context um but it's essentially people with uh, uh complex needs normally have a personality disorder diagnosis um and but it's police led and uh and what's really disturbing about it once we'd got our heads around that this was happening is is about uh uh, uh, how was it commissioned how how has it been adopted when there's no evaluation Um, and it also appears to be contravening nice guidance including including the withholding of medical support so it feels like a very clear overreach um from the police into the kind of health space Um, so there are definite parallels to be taken and 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 we need it's not like the police haven't got a role within mental health because they will often be the first port of contact particularly for people in a crisis um but somehow this We've got a disconnect between and an imbalance between how those two agencies should be working together, um, and, and and it's and it's clearly gone wrong somewhere on the on the SIM model. So so I, I, it's a great question, Rachel. And there is definite parallels which we need to understand. But, but there's also things about how are these things allowed to happen without evidence, without evaluation, and then they just get rolled out, and no one seems to have picked up on this apart from individuals saying. Mm, this is bad and it's having a terrible impact on individuals that are going through it so um, it's definitely one to watch but um, we've been talking to the campaign about that and and where we can best support them on that so um, yeah definitely one to watch.
0: Thanks a lot Vicky Um, thanks for responding to that and thanks Rachel for that question Um, so the next question was around um, what legal backing do we have, if any, to resist being co-opted into handing over patient information? I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that. Um, Phil, you take it then. <laughs>
1: confidentiality expectations are, are set out in the NHS guidelines. Um uh, they are also, you know, in common law, there's a common law duty of confidentiality. There's a public interest in confidentiality, confidential medical care, um, because otherwise, you know, uh, this is going to erode um, trust overall. So so the uh, the safeguards already exist. The problem is they have been eroded for a long time in many different ways. You know, it's not just the hubs, it's prevent for a long time has been um, eroding eroding uh, confidential guidelines, lowering the thresholds, conflating public interest justifications with safeguarding, um, using prevention of crime exceptions for data sharing. I don't know, do you want to add something, Charlotte, perhaps? I
4: can link to the, the next question. Um, actually, I think I can link quite nicely, um, which is about Um, how to counter the argument that Prevent is is safeguarding uh, and protection because confidentiality comes through significantly um, in in that. Um, So to answer that one and to make the link in two steps, why is Prevent not legitimately safeguarding? Um, As many of our audience members are healthcare or social care practitioners, they'll be familiar with um, what the definition of of safeguarding is and the requirements that need to be in place before someone can act from a health or social care background in the interests of another human being. And I can't remember the exact wording, but it's, um, you'd have to have core needs, um, very specifically outlined in the medical guidance that would prevent you from being able to defend yourself uh, against some form of abuse. Uh, and this abuse uh there's lots of them listed that people should be protected against um you know violent abuse um there's a there's a lot of them i've gone blank because (laughs) it's the evening but it's a very strict threshold for you have to have um, a significant kind of impairment that means you can't defend yourself and then a healthcare worker can make a safeguarding referral on your behalf now The hubs and prevent have been driving a 10 ton truck through this definition of of the foundation of of safeguarding and when it can be used. Um, Basically the threshold for care needs no longer applies because the definition of of extremism is thought to just bend that out of all proportion. So there's always this impairment. Radicalization is like this permanent state of impairment that could be applied to any of us at any time. Well, we're vulnerable to radical ideas, therefore um, we both have a care need um, to be protected, um, but also we can't defend ourselves against the external radicalizer who's acting on us. They just drive a truck through this understanding of what an, a need is um, and, and what abuse is. Ideological abuse? I mean, really? Is that a thing? <laughs> Apparently so. The second one, and to make the link to to Hillary's point as to why Prevent and the Hubs um, really shouldn't be considered safeguarding, um, is that you have to obtain someone's consent unless there's very strict criteria to share their information to ensure a safeguarding response. Um, Again, a, a 10 ton truck has been driven through this um, in fact, there is the prevent guidance for mental health is literally a document on how to subvert those structures of confidentiality and, and information sharing. Um, it's available online, published by the Department of Health. It's literally guidance on how to sidestep the need to obtain consent um, and instead to, to proceed without consent to share information on the basis of um, risk that violence is going to happen. Now, where that used to be had to be a really defined threat that violence was going to happen imminently and that, you know, a defined threat had been voiced. That's now been expanded to pretty much anything. Uh, And, you know, we see safeguarding referrals made for children. You know, what kind of a threat is posed by a six year old child that their information can be shared without the consent of the family? I mean, it's it's pretty ludicrous, but it's um, the sustained erosion of those care needs threshold and confidentiality um, foundations for safeguarding.
0: Thanks very much, Charlotte. Um, I wonder if maybe there's time to, oh, Tarek, did you want to come in?
3: Yeah, I was just going to mention just really quickly one point, just adding to Charlotte, because Charlotte just um, hit all the nails on the head. When you read through the reports, you're going to note that the police, when they're talking about the, the institution of these mental health hubs, the whole point of them is also to reduce false negative referrals right and which also contravenes with the spirit of safeguarding what a false negative referral actually means is that it's really best to (laughs) to refer anyone the moment you have any suspicion of anything right which is what charlotte is talking about so it it actually completely uh, almost throws throws on top of his head whereby you might have even the the smallest minutiae of concern for something and to always constantly operate upon it, it actually completely dilutes the very institution of safeguarding at that point. Because, you know, as as we know in London um, public transport, you know, see it, say it, sorted. Um, Are you going to say see it, say it, sorted is also safeguarding. You know, is, is every single time I have some kind of suspicion towards somebody in any way, shape or form, is that safeguarding, right? So we have to sort of draw the logic backwards of what they're actually trying to achieve. And you can see it, it's black on white. They they speak about that very frequently about reducing false negatives. Try to get as many people, because a false negative is actually missing out on a potential referral.
0: Thanks, Tarek. So I think that there's time for maybe just a couple more questions. Um, I'm gonna ask this one um, from Timothy Malone. Um, how are the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the GMC, the CQC responding to this? Are these not the organizations that are there to protect patients and regulate the ethics and behavior of doctors working in the sector and sound alarm bells across society? Are they failing in their duty to protect patients and regulate psychiatrists? And then um, the last question. Is there work being done to bring together health workers, teachers and social workers to oppose all this? Um, And that's from David Lando. So I think he'll, yeah.
1: Sorry, yeah, I could come back on the first one. Um, We really are expecting, hoping, waiting for the Royal College of Psychiatrists and the General Medical Council and potentially also the Care Quality Commission to make some public statements and to um to act and speak out against these hubs um it's unclear to us exactly how much the royal college of psychiatrists have known about these hubs but um they've known something about them going on because they're quoted in the article from 2017 that i talked about very 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 rapidly at the beginning of the call Um, and they have issued you know um position statements on psychiatry and counterterrorism, and they have um, issued um, a document called Ethical Considerations, um, which which actually speaks very, very closely to the concerns raised and the importance that the, the hubs raise. So we think that they, you know, certainly have had some idea of what's going on in these hubs, but we'd like to see them come out openly challenged, and because they've made Commitments to um, challenging racism on the back of Black Lives Matter. Um, and, the, and the hubs are, are, are deeply Islamophobic, so we'd like to see them sort of put their money where their mouth is, as it were. Um, and the same with the GMC, we think they should urgently look at whether health workers are um, acting beyond the health remit at these hubs, and also whether counterterrorism police have created, in effect, uh, loopholes which circumvent confidentiality. Um, yeah, so if you are a member of those organisations or you have any sway, please get in touch. Please please let us know that, you know, you know lobby those organisations, or, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to speak more, um, if you're a member. And, and Reeve, should I pass back to you for the, for the final question about perhaps what
0: activism is being done? Yeah, thanks, Hill. Um, yeah, so after the publication of our false positives report last year, on prevent in the NHS, uh, a number of health workers and also um, people from other kind of public sectors, so including higher education, um, including yeah, I'm also including people affected by prevent itself. So whether that's you know family members or of people who were referred to prevent or people who were referred to prevent themselves, um, we came together to try to think through you know what can be done to challenge something like prevent or to challenge more broadly, like counter extremism, securitization policies in healthcare, um, of course, like the difficulty, for example, with prevent is that it's it's a legal duty. It's a statutory duty, professionals have a duty to undertake the trainings if asked um, with it, if they, if they work for the NHS. So, um, so the difficulty is a lot of the time people feel very isolated when they try to challenge this in the workplace, um, particularly if they're racialized um, in some way or if they are more junior. And so I guess what we intend, we created the Securitization of Health Group um, and we um, in that group, we kind of provide a space to be able to support each other, to raise issues with Prevent um, within a professional setting, in some way, um, and also we've created like a pack, uh, like what we've called a mutual aid pack, for people who um, may have been affected by Prevent in some way. Whether that's because they have to undertake the training, whether they, it's because they feel like they've been discriminated against as a result of Prevent in the workplace, or um, yeah, whether it's because they themselves were referred to Prevent. And within that, it um, has you know legal pointers for people who want to challenge their referral in some way. Um, and then we have other pointers for ways that people can challenge. So we point people towards their trade union branches, saying that we can together support each other to raise that within within that kind of trade union collegiate context. Um, but another way is, so yeah, we're running these. Um, we feel like it's really important to just educate people about the issue, the issues of kind of securitization within healthcare. Um, and so we're running these alternative trainings on prevent um yes please ben <laughs> we're running these alternative trainings on prevent in healthcare for people and we've called it that because you know people obviously have to go to the prevent trainings but often there's just not the space often it's like an e learning they can't even challenge it in person they just have to sit through it and then that's it so we've yeah created the space where people can have more critical engagement where they can you know come to information um yeah other information about prevent um, and find out ways how, of how they can get involved in a collective who are trying to challenge it so yeah the next alternative training on prevent is next week on tuesday at 6 p.m. so that's the 25th so you can register for that on our website um and i would really encourage you to do that because It is just a good way of finding out more. And we also, you know, we've created a pack on our website that's like frequently asked questions on prevent because often people just feel very, you know, nervous about even responding to questions about prevent, you know, the classic questions of, but what's the alternative? Don't we want to stop terrorism? Um, And so I think it's just a good way of coming and like being able to like educate yourself um, and then to educate your colleagues. And that kind of creates the the um, the building blocks of like a ground shift on Prevent. Um, so yeah, I would really encourage you to do that. Um, so I think we're gonna have to start to wrap up. We won't be able to take any more questions, but I did put in the chat box the, um, I did put in the chat box the email address that you can email if you have further questions. And it's just, office at medact.org um because i am yeah just very aware that there were loads of really great questions and i wish we had the time to get into it all um so yeah i just want to thank our speakers again um who did just such a great job and um i also wanted to just let you know that you can there's i think ben are you putting a master the the oh yeah there it is so if you look in the chat box. There's like a master, there's a document, I don't know what it's called, a document that has all these different links in. So links for you to register to the event next week, links to the report from today that we've just been discussing today, a link to the report from last year on Prevent, um, and then links on how you can actually join the mailing list of the Securitization of Health Group, um, where you'll get regular updates about our events and how you can get involved. Um, And then, um, yeah, just to say as well that um, please do sign up to our mailing list and you'll be kept in in up to date about any future events, any future reports, blogs, etc. And you can also sign up to be a member of MedApp by paying as little as one pound a month. And we're only able to do the work that we do through the support and dedication of our members. Our members play such a huge part in all of the work that we do. Um, and yeah, it's, it would just be great to see some of you becoming, you know, active members of, of MedAct. Um, so yeah, just thank you so much to everyone who attended. There's still 100 people here and it's 8.30, which is really amazing. I'm quite hungry. So <laughs> I'm amazed you guys have stuck it out. So thanks so much. Um, and thanks again to the speakers and to Ben and TJ, who've been doing a lot today too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find the full report on the Medact website. If you want to find out about future Medact events, you can sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails.